Our first reading this morning is from the essay, Hailstones Happen, in the book Cancer Essays, Not the Book I Was Planning to Write, by Dorothy Sauber. Growing up on a small family farm meant having almost daily contact with disaster. Cattle, horses, and pigs lived the Russian roulette life of the farmyard. Even the healthiest of sheep on the farm might not survive a southern Minnesota ice storm or blizzard. The summer I was 10 years old, my mother, father, and I were seated at the kitchen table when a wind came up so suddenly it rattled the chimney. Our forks were in midair when the room went dark. The sounds of the storm battering the house, barn, outbuildings, animals, and fields entered the room. First came heavy rain on the shed's tin roofs and then the beating at the kitchen windows. Hailstones the size of brass doorknobs pressed down on the farm from all directions. And then, as quickly as it had arrived, the storm moved on. For the first time in years, my father had a crop in the north field that promised to cover the farm mortgage payment. In the time it took us to say grace, and fill our plates with meat and potatoes, a mid-July storm stripped 80 acres of ripening corn down to stubble. The storm passed, but there was no air or speech left in the kitchen. After a long look out the window, my father turned to the space between the three of us and said, I'm going out to feed the heifers. The second reading is by Wendell Berry, a poem called A Purification. At the start of spring, I open a trench in the ground. I put into it the winter's accumulation of paper, pages I do not want to read again. Useless words, fragments, errors. And I put into it the contents of the outhouse. Light of the sun, growth of the ground, finished with one of their journeys. To the sky, to the wind, then, and to the faithful trees, I confess my sins, that I have not been happy enough, considering my good luck, have listened too much to noise, have been inattentive to wonders, have lusted after praise, And then upon the gathered refuse of mind and body, I close the trench, folding shut again the dark, the deathless earth. Beneath that seal, the old escapes into the new. Well, here's that rainy day. Storms are such a metaphor for loss, rainy days, stormy weather, hailstorms, tsunamis, growing in intensity, the big ones bringing destruction and death, the small ones destroying a perfectly beautiful day, turning sunshine into rain, love into hurt, but all of them, big and small, also bringing hope, hope for the sun, for change, for something better. 
Our theme this month is Death, Loss, Transition, and it has been a month of death, loss, and transition. The earthquake in New Zealand, the hailstorm for freedom that has swept across North Africa, the earthquake and tsunami that brought such destruction in Japan and was felt on the other side of the Pacific. A week or so ago when I thought I would call this sermon Hailstorms, I had no idea a tsunami would sweep across Japan, making the destruction of a hailstorm a puny thing, a minor occurrence. Unless, of course, you were depending on the corn crop for your mortgage payment. Weather, weather is so elemental. It's like, it's like death. It's something we can't control. But, but if we didn't have it, if we didn't have storms, where would we be? Who would we be? If there was no loss, no change, no rain on our parade, how would we grow? How would we even know we are alive? Last Sunday, Ruth referred to Dr. Stuart Brown's work on the importance of rough and tumble play for children, of getting hurt, of even risking a fracture. But what do we do if the hurt is too great, when it's a tsunami, not just a cloudburst? When I was young, I wanted, I wanted more storm, more drama, more adventure in my life. I always wanted that easy way to high ground, but I wanted stuff to happen. And I really blame my religious upbringing, my stark Presbyterian predestined Calvinist heritage. John Knox Presbyterian Church, Marietta, Georgia, had no pizzazz. <laughs> what I wanted... What I really, really wanted was to be Catholic. <laughs> I didn't know, I didn't actually know any Catholics, but I had seen, I had seen the nun's story with the radiant Audrey Hepburn in full habit. So what I knew was that there were these really cool nun outfits, that there was incense, there was chanting, and the confessional, a dark box where you could just anonymously drop off your sins and walk away free, purged, pure. I had no way to confess my sins, which I think now is I had no way to forgive myself. Now, I do know people now who were raised Catholic, and some say it wasn't really all that great, but, <laughs> but I really wanted it. So I think it is that old yearning that drew me to the Wendell Berry poem, A Purification. He begins, at the start of spring, I open a trench in the ground. I put into it the winter's accumulation of paper, pages I do not want to read again, useless words, fragments, errors. Errors, that's what got me. What do we do with errors? When I was also a child, lusting after being a Catholic, I had a bird, a parakeet. His name was Pogo. He was wonderful. He could say, pretty bird, pretty bird. He could have a bath in the kitchen sink under my, on my finger. And every day when I got home from school, I let him out of the cage. We also had a cat, an alley cat, that just showed up one day and uh, never came in the house. He was an outdoor cat. He'd come in to eat 
and then he would sit on top of the bird's cage for a few minutes till somebody noticed and then threw him outside again. Well, on this day, you can guess what I did. I forgot the bird was out and I let the cat in. And the cat moved like a tsunami across the kitchen and had the bird in an instant. He didn't kill him, but he was really mortally wounded, lying on his side, a little bit of blood on his feather. But I kept thinking, he's not dead, he's not dead. And I said to my dad, "We we can save him, we can take him to the vet. I was so sure. Well, my father, probably the gentlest man on the planet, knew what he had to do. There was no way to save the bird. He put him in a little bag, explained to me that he'd attach the bag to the exhaust pipe of the car, and he would have, Pogo would have a a painless and peaceful death. I was crying hysterically, begging him, begging him to save the bird. But my mother had to hold me back when he went out to the garage. But of course, there was no going back. There was no saving. The hailstorm had happened. The tsunami came. It was too late. Nobody said it was my fault, but I knew. And I know now, many, many years later, that we've all done it at some point. We've all been the person who let the cat in when the bird was out, been culpable, been guilty, fragments, errors. Wendell Berry goes on in that poem, filling the trench in the ground, and I put into it the contents of the outhouse, which I think is a great metaphor for the confessional. Light of the sun, light of the sun, growth of the ground, finished with one of their journeys. Finished with one of their journeys. Isn't that forgiveness? Taking what we don't want, our sorry for, our ashamed of, our regret, our error, and absorbing it back into the earth, the deathless earth, a purification. So perhaps I'm not the only one who carries old guilt, errors you don't know what to do with, losses you don't talk about, hailstorms that you unleashed. As I was thinking about Pogo, I was surprised at how quickly guilt over my father's death waved over me. He was 87. His lungs gave out. The doctor said there was nothing to be done. But I can't shake that feeling that we should have done more, my brother and I could have done something. I've also been struck by the power of a single action or event to change everything, to divide our lives into before and after. I let the cat in. You slip on the sidewalk and break a hip. She's diagnosed with terminal cancer. A poor man in Tunisia self-immolates and a hailstorm sweeps across North Africa. A tsunami engulfs Japan. As these storms sweep over us, the emotion is the same, I think, fear and hope. I just read a description of how to survive a tsunami. Simple advice, run uphill, it said. Seems a little bit simplistic, but run, fear, uphill, hope. Run uphill. Mary Oliver said, doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Well, yes. 
We know that, but, but we don't have to accept it. Well, well, actually we do. My dad had to help that little bird die. Dorothy Sauber's father had to go out and feed the heifers. We have to send our offering to people suffering in Japan. What else, what else should we do? At the end of the Hailstorm essay, Sauber writes, I know I can't change my diagnosis of terminal cancer any more than the three of us could have stopped the hailstones. But when death puts its hand on our own beloved selves, fear and grief become a suit of clothes the terminally ill can't ever take off. Fear and grief become a suit of clothes the terminally ill can't take off. They're not alone. The chronically ill know something about fear and grief. The unemployed know something about fear and grief. Bereaved families know something about fear and grief. The people of Sendai, Japan, know something about fear and grief. The rebels in Libya know something about fear and grief. In fact, isn't that all of us? Sometime, in some way, we all wear that suit of clothes of fear and grief. And don't forget guilt, that silent companion we don't like to talk about. I think many of us are familiar with Kubler-Ross's stages of grief, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, resignation. Fear and guilt didn't make the list, but they seem so familiar to me so connected to the shoulds that go with loss. I should have done more, should have worked harder, should have been more careful or smarter, should have been more assertive, less assertive, should have built on high ground. Something I should have done or should not have done. Some error. What to do with it? UU minister Judith Meyer says, The work of grieving is a journey back to new life. The wound may be deep. It does not go away. Rather, the wound, too, becomes part of the new life. We become life going on after grief and loss, life going on to new experiences and joys, life going on to greater compassion and wisdom. These are hard-won gains, but they are ours and they make us who we are. For that reason, we celebrate and give thanks for the dead who have given us new life. Or give thanks for the loss, whatever it is, for it has given us new life. It's the after. A hard-won gain, but it is ours and makes us who we are. For that reason, we do celebrate, or, as Barry says, I confess my sins that I have not been happy enough considering my good luck, have listened to too much noise, have been inattentive to wonders. That's the beginning of acceptance, isn't it? Being attentive to wonder. In another essay, Sauber describes what she called the three stages of her cancer lunches. She says family and friends started calling more often, taking her out to lunch, what she called a living wake. 
The first round of cancer lunches, she says, was therapeutic, but sometimes hard to get through. Friends cried over tuna salad sandwiches. That I survived to have a second round of cancer lunches became reason to celebrate. Some insisted we start going to more expensive restaurants. Her third round of cancer lunches had just begun when she was writing the essay. She says, practice is making us all better at being together as though it might be our last time. My friends and I laugh more, cry more easily, and no longer part without saying we love each other. And we share our mutual efforts at making each day count. Since my diagnosis, one friend has stopped buying that cheap ice cream. Another friend told her that since the diagnosis, everything was illuminated. Illuminated. So how do we stay in that light? How do we forgive ourselves and accept not only the loss, but the greater compassion and wisdom it has given us? Hard one gains, but ours. How do we fight the fear that comes with loss? And what do we do with the guilt and grief and fear? Our universalist faith gives us the gift of love and hope, and there is an answer there, but how do we get to it? In June of 2008, Dorothy Saber called a meeting of 20 friends, I among them. She was just home from a rough week at the hospital, very rough, and was beginning home hospice care. Those of us gathered in her small living room were really nervous and afraid. She thanked us for coming and got right to the point. I have a gift for you, she said. I want you to take care of me. Both sons lived out of town. They would be with her as often as possible, but she needed help around the clock. I have a gift for you, she said, her exact words. Help me, care for me, love me. What an invitation to love. We said, yes, of course, we will do it. We got organized, and somebody was there 24-7. The chronically late among us, of which there were several, were always on time. The shy asked all the right questions when the hospice nurse was there. The clumsy among us learned to use the nebulizer. The gregarious were silent when she needed quiet. We became kinder, gentler people as we surrounded her with love and care. We forgot our own shortcomings and lived in her light those last two months. As UU Minister Forrest Church said after his own terminal diagnosis, the only question worth asking is where do we go from here? And part of the answer must include the word together. Together. That's true of every loss, transition, change. Hailstorms happen, things change, we let the cat in, we grow into ourselves, and we believe in love and hope and life. We offer help, and we do it together. Sounds easy. It's not easy, especially when the hailstorm is in your field, when the tsunami is personal. Death, loss, change are not easy. We don't look for it, don't like it, don't welcome it, don't want it, but it comes anyway. 
We've learned to say that the only constant is change as if that should explain everything. My job is eliminated because they're doing things more efficiently now. Or I am sick, or my child is sick, or my parent is sick. The hailstorm swept through and I am terrified. Even here in this loving community, the social hall is rearranged. The office is different. I don't know where things are. It's all changed. These losses, these kinds of losses, big and little deaths, challenge our very identity. On one level, like Wendell Berry, we know we should be happier considering our good luck, that we have listened to too much noise, that we've been inattentive to wonders, and we're always talking about learning to live in the present, to be present, to be attentive, but we don't always make it. Sometimes we fail and we are angry, we are lost, we're guilty, we're afraid. Poet Joy Harjo, in her poem, I Give You Back, says, in part, I release you, my beautiful and terrible fear. I release you. You were my beloved and hated twin, but now I don't know you as myself. I release you with all the pain I would know at the death of my daughters. I release you. I release you. I release you. I release you. I take myself back, fear. You are not my shadow any longer. I won't hold you in my hands. You can't live in my eyes, my ears, my voice, my belly, or in my heart. My heart. My heart. My heart. But come here, fear. I am alive, and you are so afraid of dying. I, t I take myself back. That's part of growing into yourself after loss, the hard-won gain. That's forgiveness. That's love. That's compassion. That's acceptance. My dad was comatose when I arrived in Atlanta, unresponsive, not expected to survive the night. The family had gathered, my brother, my dad's wife of three years, Alice. They were waiting for me to get there. The doctor said it could be an hour or a day. There was nothing to be done. Dad had a living will. It seemed really clear. His room included a chair that became a fold-out bed. And my brother had been on call most of the summer as our dad had gone from one medical emergency to another. So it was decided I would stay the night in his room so the rest of them could go home and get some rest. I would call if anything happened. Well, something did happen. A miracle, or so it seemed. Sometime the next day, my father woke up, sat up, talked, wanted water, seemed to be himself. He was weak, couldn't speak above a rasp, couldn't really swallow, but seemed himself. We told him how very ill he was, how he was dying. He said, no, no, that wasn't going to happen. Classic denial, I thought. And for nine days, we settled into a new normal, me sleeping there. Alice, his wife Alice, her visit was the main event of each day. They were so madly in love, these two, testimony I felt to my parents' good 60-year marriage. 
my father knew how to love, and he loved Alice deeply, and sometimes quite obviously. It was quite a deal, and so I would leave them alone. <laughs> that last night, he looked so content propped up there watching the Braves on television that I left the room and called my brother to say, I don't think he's dying. We've got to do something. We have got to talk to the doctors. We've got to start some extraordinary measures. My brother agreed we would meet with the doctor first thing in the morning. My dad died in his sleep that night. We waited too long. But earlier that day, at his request, two nurses had helped him out of bed to sit in a chair. He wavered there, barely upright, his skinny body trembling. He was freezing. Do you want a blanket, I said. He shook his head, smiled. No, he rasped. I've got my love to keep me warm. Alice. Forrest Church said the most eloquent answer to death's no is love's yes. Dorothy Sauber learned to say I love you to her friends. And I was with my father at his very sweetest, a sweet man, sweeter still, his gift to me, and he had his love to keep him warm. Hailstorms happen. You let the cat in, then you do what has to be done, and you speak your love in the clearest way. You say it out loud. You send money or help. You are the love. So I give you back fear. I give you back guilt. I give you back should. Let's close that trench and accept forgiveness and the gift of love, of love's yes, love's warmth, love's all-embracing yes. As the hymn says, we believe in life and in the strength of love and the need to be together. So be it.